Before we look at Daniel, please listen as I read from Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by, uh, by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and the width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O people, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar uh, has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's pray for our time of study this morning. Thank you, Father, for these biblical accounts that teach us such great lessons of faith and courage and humility and walking with you through difficult times. Thus, our time of study of this very familiar story, I pray this morning. And pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have captured our imagination in various settings. The songs have been set to music about them. Uh, parents have used them to put their children to bed. Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. My favorite is my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. But despite the catchy sound of their names, this is an intense and dramatic story of men who faced a fiery furnace. In order to grasp the significance of this story, we've got to move past the childhood perceptions of this familiar story and the distractions that would relegate it to a myth-like status. Now, this is an account of steadfast faith of three young men. Faith, the great theologian B.B. Warfield said, is a synonym for Christianity. That's why the study of Daniel 3 is so important. It contains a historical account of active faith, of men who were both courageous and humble. They faced a very strong ruler who made a demand on them and in faith, they trusted in God, their God, a God of power, and strength, and mercy. They also humbly submitted to 
the evil actions of this powerful ruler. Understanding God's ability and God's power, but never arrogant enough to presume that they knew the will of God for their lives. So let's look at this familiar story together. The historical context is found in verses 1 through 7. The same stage on which today's events in the Middle East are being carried out is the setting for this biblical event in Daniel chapter 3. We sometimes have a tendency to think that the turmoil we see in the Middle East is unique to our time. But that turmoil has gone for thousands and thousands of years. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his armies have just displaced Assyria as a dominant force in the Middle East. They have their eyes, that is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, on Egypt and conquering Egypt, but little Israel is in the way. And so on three occasions, Nebuchadnezzar comes against uh, Israel. In 605 B.C., in 597 B.C., and 586 B.C., three times. The final time, he sacks Jerusalem and the temple and takes captives back to uh, Babylon. But the first time, in 605 B.C., he just comes and sort of meanders around, and he, but he takes some captives back. He takes Daniel and his three friends and others, and most Bible scholars believe that these were just young men, teenagers, possibly. So as you come to Daniel chapter 3, it's probably five to ten years after they have been taken into captivity and two to three years after the events of chapter 2. These young men are now probably in their mid to late 20s. They hold positions of high honor uh, in, the, in the land of Babylon. Daniel isn't mentioned in our story, but he also has a place of honor, and he may have been away on business. We just don't know. But to understand chapter 3, we need to go back to chapter 2. You'll remember that in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a, of a person, of an image, of a statue. And all of his counselors and his, uh, his wise men could not interpret that, what that dream meant. So he called on Daniel, and Daniel came and interpreted the dream for him. He said the image uh, was an image of, of various metals, that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the head of gold. Then there was a chest and arms of silver and the belly of, and thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and feet of iron and clay mixed. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he represented that head of gold and that after he passed off the scene, another kingdom of lesser value would come and take his place. Now, I have no idea what was going on in Nebuchadnezzar's mind but it seems like he thought, you know, if I'm the head of gold, maybe I can do something to solidify my reign and I can reign eternally. So on the plain of Dura, he erected an image of gold. I believe it was gold-plated. Other New Testament references indicate that things made of gold were gold-plated. But this was a, a huge image. The, the cubits there, don't, not familiar to us, but let's just say for the sake of of, of clarification, that was about eight stories high. That is a big statue, about 90 feet, nine inches, it's estimated. As I mentioned, it, it's gold-plated. It gleams on that Middle Eastern sun, and it's placed on a stand. Archaeologists have found a place about six miles uh, south of Babylon where they unearthed this large brick slab that possibly this uh, statue 
sat on. Then the king summoned a whole group of people, and they're mentioned in verse 2. Basically, what those indicators mean, what those references mean, are all the people who were involved in the military, the politicians, the administrators. They come together at Nebuchadnezzar's call. It seems pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar wants to unify his people. I am the king. This is my idol. You're going to bow down to it and recognize by doing that that I am your ruler. You are under my authority. On the one hand, this is a political statement. It's designed to unify the new kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar. But it's also a religious statement. Eleven times in this chapter, the word worship is mentioned or used. So you have both things going on. It's, it's political, but it's also a religious deal. All right, they're, they're all here. This must have been a, a spectacle when this thing was assembled. Then the herald gives the instruction, as we read in verses 4 and following. When you hear the music of the Babylon beboppers or the Nebuchadnezzar hip-hop rappers, you all bow down, okay? And there are consequences for non-compliance in verse 6. You either bow or you burn. There is no third option. Just to note, this, uh, this furnace, this fiery furnace, was probably a large mound uh, kiln in which there was a hole in the top and uh, some sort of ladder that led people up and you just dropped them in there. And archaeologists believe that there were areas below where you uh, could see in or you could pull things out or put, the, you know, it's a crazy thing. And this is one of the more common methods of capital punishment. What a picture. I wish we had a DVD or a CD of the music of this thing. Wouldn't it have been great? Boy. The music begins to play. The plane is filled with thousands and thousands of people and that gold-plated statue of probably the image of Nebuchadnezzar is gleaming in the Middle Eastern sun. The music begins to play. And everyone bows down. They hit the dirt. Well, just about everybody. All the people bowing down. But there are three nonconformists. Can you see them out there? Among all those people who are bowing, there's three of them standing out there. What we find is, in verses 8 through 12, three young men who chose not to bow. Verse 8 of chapter 3. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans, that's another name or reference to the Babylonians, came forward and brought charges against the Jews. The Jews. That word brought charges, is, or those words brought charges are interesting. They, they literally mean to eat the pieces of flesh or to gnaw at. That doesn't translate well into English, so it's brought charges. But you get the idea. They were mad. They were angry. And so they bring charges. Hey, king, these Jewish boys that you put in places of responsibility, they're not doing what you commanded. 
In verse 12, they make three accusations. O king, they have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. The first is, is absolutely false. They had regard for the king. They worked with him. They were in a, a place of, of high authority within the kingdom of administrative authority. But the second two were accurate. They did not serve the king's gods. They did not worship the king's image. These three young men, who were probably in their 20s, said, no, we're not going to bow down. There were any number of excuses that they could have used, aren't there? Look, Nebuchadnezzar's the boss. He's been good to us. Why not bow down? Or we're not back in silly old Jerusalem now. We're in high society. Oh, we don't have to worry about that big old piece of junk. It doesn't mean anything to us. Everybody else is doing it. <laughs> when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do, you know. Or they could have said, there are just so few of us. Why resist? Once won't hurt. Well, I can ask God for forgiveness and it'll be okay. In a situation like this, there is no crime greater than nonconformity. Yet that is exactly what God asks of these three young men. Can you imagine the peer pressure that they faced? But they didn't compromise. And I be believe it's because they function based on internal, internal principles rather than external pressures. They function based on eternal principles rather than external pressures. Our decisions, our attitudes, our behaviors are determined by one of two things. Our internal principles, our external pressure. And there is a battle going on every moment of every day between these two conflicting things. They did not bow. In verses 13 and 18, through 18, they chose not to bend. Nebuchadnezzar is ticked. He's really, really angry. He immediately calls them on the carpet. The, the accusers point out again and, uh, what they've done, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar dispatched some soldiers to go out and get them and bring them back. You can almost understand the dialogue. The, these were people in his command. They, they, he worked, uh, they worked with him. There must be some mistake. You, you didn't hear things right. I said when this band plays, you bow down, but you didn't. There must be something, some misunderstanding. <laughs> and then it, it, it's almost humorous. And Nebuchadnezzar makes a big, big mistake. Look at the end of verse 15. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> he has gone from Nebuchadnezzar against three young men to Nebuchadnezzar against the God of the universe, and that's not a good position to be in. And they answer the king, standing before the most powerful man in their world, who with a flick of a finger could put them to death, they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. And I don't believe that they're being disrespectful. I think they're just saying there's nothing that we can say because we trust God. And they go on to say, God can deliver us, but God may not. And if he doesn't, that's okay. I am convinced that they had predecided, if that's a term, if that's a, a concept, they had predecided the who is God thing is settled for them. We have done nothing wrong. And the scriptures tell us you shall not make an idol or worship them. You shall love the Lord your God with your entire being. Can I just do a little bit of a bunny trail here? When you compare Daniel 1 and Daniel 3, where we encounter these three young men, Daniel and his three friends, you have three men who stand and do what's right. And I become convinced that they, their family must have been something. They, they were trained well. They understood the scriptures. They understood their God. But not only that, when they came to Babylon, they made that faith their own. It was personal to them. The God issue is settled. He is a God of power. And if he wants, he can save us. But he also might have purposes beyond what we understand. Regardless, we're not changing our minds. In verse 17, they affirmed God's ability to deliver them. In verse 18, they affirmed their submission to the will of God. You see, their internal principles were guided by the word of God and their knowledge of God. They were confident in him. And would not be swayed by external pressures. They were absolutely committed to internal principles. They would not compromise, no matter the external pressures. Stuttgart Kennedy was a pastor from England. He was also a chaplain in World War I. As a chaplain, he had to go to war, and he left behind a wife and a little son. He wrote a letter to his son. Obviously, it was to his wife to be read to his son. He wrote it in the midst of a very severe series of battles. It went something like this. The first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not keep daddy safe. first prayer I want my son to learn is God make daddy brave. If he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Life and death don't matter, my son. Right and wrong do Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. That's true. Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy compromised is something awful. And that is the uncompromising integrity that these boys demonstrated and that God calls on us as well. There's something else I learned in this chapter about these young men and God that I think is important. There are times when biblical faith is obedient in spite of God's silence and in spite of the consequences. There are times in our lives when biblical faith 
is obedient in spite of God's silence and in spite of the consequences. In spite of God's silence. The Bible is clear. God is good and God is present in our lives, but there are times, there will be times, when you will go through experiences in which you're hanging onto the backside of a question mark, wondering, what in the world are you doing, God? Why is this happening? And it's those times when we need to trust Him. There are times when faith is tested and courage costs. Times when steadfast faith is obedient in spite of God's silence. In spite of the consequences. These young men understood that God's ability is not limited by his power. It's limited by his purpose. God is able, but if not, three young guys, they chose not to bow, then they chose not to bend, and then God chose not to let them burn. Verses 19 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. This guy is angry a lot. He's mad in verse 13. He's mad again in verse 19. His facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. (laughs) You know the story. This is typical of a guy who wants to dominate others. He builds the tallest image. He overlays it with gold. We believe it was fashioned in his likeness. He's hot under the collar, so he makes the furnace seven times hotter than it ought to be. He wants to dominate people. Then he takes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throws them fully clothed. And oh, by the way, tied up. Whenever we read through Scripture, notice what words are repeated. Tied up, tied up, tied up. Three times for emphasis. These guys are tied up. There's no way they can get out. They are thrown into the furnace. Then look at uh, verse 25. Nebuchadnezzar goes back and sits down and waits. And he looks into that thing somehow. Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, remember, he's a polytheist. There are a whole bunch of gods. But, but what is this in the furnace with three, three guys? Some suggest it's an angel that God sent. Others believe it is the angel of the Lord. You'll encounter that term as you walk through the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 16, verses 9 through 11, talks about the angel of the Lord. Old Testament scholars believe that that is a reference specifically to a pre-incarnate evidence of of Jesus Christ, that that the angel of the Lord is is Jesus come to walk in the furnace with these three young men. And look at verse 27. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the kings, high officials gathered around and saw in regard to those men that, uh, that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged. 
nor had the smell of the fire even come upon them. Okay, guys. We're talking about a class A++++ miracle here. Huh? And do you know what happens? God gets the glory. Look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielded up their bodies so as not to serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this guy is really extreme. They should be torn limb from limb, their houses reduced to rubbish, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province. In front of all of the leaders, now, he's a polytheist, but he's saying their God, their God is something special. In front of all of the leaders, he, he looks at these three men who would not compromise, who counted the cost, and God's reputation goes through the roof. They get delivered. As you read the text, Nebuchadnezzar gives praise to God and they get promoted. And Listen, every time a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, takes a stand for the Lord, lives upstream in a downstream world, God gets the glory. Every time a follower of Jesus Christ lives out eternal principles rather than be pressured by external things, God gets the glory. Whenever anyone tells you it's okay to cheat and you step up and say, not for me it isn't, God gets the glory. Whenever when, when someone says, well, everybody else is doing it, go ahead and enjoy yourself. But you say, nope, I'm not going to compromise. God gets the glory. You see, God wants people of faith and courage who in a winsome, non-judgmental way say, nope, I'm not going to do it. It may cost me. It may cost me a relationship. It may cost me money. May cost me whatever. I, I'm going to be pure. I'm going to walk with God because He is holy and powerful. And if it costs me, it costs me. That's what this story is all about. <laughs> Let me leave you with three thoughts to take home with you this morning that emerge from this passage that I think are important. The first is this, every generation will be forced to choose between God and the idols of their day. Every generation will be forced to choose between God and the idols of their day. For the three Hebrew guys, it was a big gold-plated statue of Nebuchadnezzar. The king said, bow down. But in every culture, in every place, there is the challenge 
to the child of God to bow down. Idolatry means the worship of idols or the paying of divine honor to any created thing. Idolatry for some and some societies and some places means bowing down to an image made of, of, of steel or wood. In other places, bowing down to idols is internal. Bowing down to something, some empty, useless God we made up from our mind or our heart. Paul used the term idolatry in writing about coveting and gluttony in Ephesians and Colossians. He was in, fact, in effect charging them to not make a God out of their passions or their appetites. The bottom line, an idol is anything you put before God. And it's a timeless deal. Back then it was statues and false gods and foreign deities. Today it's pleasure and success and self-fulfillment. You can make an idol out of anything. It can be your husband or your wife, your child, your work, your house, your car, your lawn, a particular sports franchise. Well, you've you got to know me to get that one. Anyway, <laughs> um, a trip abroad, digital devices, the internet, any of those things. And none of them in and of themselves are bad or wrong. It's when we don't see them as gifts from God. When we squeeze God out, then those things become idolatry. Jesus Christ has sole right, by virtue of who he is, to be at the center of our life. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.18, He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he, in, he himself will come to have first place in everything. Every generation will choose between God and the idols of their day. There are no exceptions. The second thing I, I learned from this passage is that living faithfully means doing what you know is right, even when everyone else is doing what's wrong. Living faithfully means doing what you know to be right when everyone else is doing wrong. When I was growing up, my parents um, had a saying uh, that they used to lay on me when I was going to do something sketchy with my friends. If they all jumped off a bridge, would you jump off too? I didn't know where the bridge was at. I mean, what bridge they were talking about. But what they were doing was cautioning me against doing things that were stupid or could get me in trouble. These three young Hebrew guys faced intense peer pressure. Thousands of people, thousands of people, they estimate, on the plain of Dura. And Nebuchadnezzar's hip-hop rappers start to play, and everybody bows down. But not the three guys out there. We're not bowing down. Just because everyone else is doing it. Because they were absolutely committed to the internal principles that guided their life, and would not be dictated by external pressures. They understood what God expected from them, and they had pre-decided, this is what we will do, and I would urge you, at whether age of life or stage of life you're at this morning, you need to pre-decide 
what will I do when the pressure is on? Don't go along with the crowd. Don't be influenced by the wrong people. Don't make poor choices. Don't jump off the proverbial bridge just because everybody else is doing it. Courage is the act of putting your convictions into practice regardless of the the cost. It means you have the guts to know what's right and to do it. Idols. Doing what everyone else does. There's a third lesson. And that's God delivers according to his plan and his purpose. God delivers according to his plan and his purpose. Or we might say in his time and in his way. Isn't that what these guys said to the king? God can deliver us, but he might not. And we're okay with that. They were young men of courage who trusted the character of God and were obedient regardless of the cost. You know, the fact is that God could have still been of control and allowed those three young men to perish in the fire. That's what happens and has happened to thousands of men and women of faith down through the centuries. Having said that, I would like to just mention there are three ways that God delivers. First, he delivers us out of the situation. You find yourself in a fiery furnace situation, and he pulls you out of it. You're in a terrible relationship, and God intervenes and changes hearts, and everything works out. You have a financial situation, and you get a check. You get some money to help you. You lose your job because you take a stand for Jesus, but you get a better job. You're diagnosed with a life-threatening disease. There seems to be no hope, but one day, one day, it's all gone. You're completely healed. He delivers you out of the situation. We see that throughout Scripture and throughout life. He delivers you out of the situation And if I was in a situation, I'd vote for A. (laughs) But that's not the only way he delivers. Sometimes he delivers through the situation. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12, in this chapter... Paul is writing the Corinthian church. The letter of 2 Corinthians is probably one of the most personal of all Paul's letters. He talks about a lot about himself and his experience. And in this chapter, he begins by talking about um, God giving to him special revelation, special insight, special vision. And then in verse 7, he writes, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, from being proud... (laughs) There was a given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Many believe it was a physical ailment. We don't know exactly what it was, but something to keep him humble. 
But Paul said, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that, he might leave, that it might leave me. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so the power of Christ may dwell in me. See what Paul is saying? I pray, God, take this thing from me. Heal me. Take it away. Take it away. And God said, no. But I'll walk with you through it. Your grace will be sufficient for you. There are times when you find yourselves in difficult situation. And they go on and on and on and you plead with God and God seems to say no. But one thing you can depend upon in that no is his grace. He will walk with you through it. And as he walks with you through it, you may not be comfortable, but your character will be changed because of the relationship with, you have with him. God sometimes delivers us out of a situation. Sometimes he delivers us through a situation. But thirdly, sometimes he delivers people unto himself. Every believer doesn't get healed of cancer. Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And down through history, there have been men and women who have taken a stand for Jesus Christ and they've paid the ultimate price. God has taken them home. They have been martyred for their faith. And where we began in Hebrews 11, the last half of that book, uh, that chapter talks about individuals who died because of their faith. Sometimes God delivers us from a situation. Sometimes he delivers us through a situation. And sometimes he delivers us unto himself. But there's one other way that God delivers us. We might call it spiritually. As we sit here this morning, men and women, boys and girls who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, as we worship here this morning, we need to fully grasp the extent of his deliverance of us through Jesus Christ. Because we have a relationship with God through Jesus, we have been delivered from Satan and sin and hell and death. Praise God for the cross of Calvary and the complete deliverance that was accomplished. Three young men faced a difficult situation a, a difficult decision, if you will. We found the account of their courage in Daniel chapter 3 in grand simplicity. They are tested. They are charged. They're arraigned. They're convicted. They're preserved. And they're honored. They lived with absolute commitment to internal principles and would not compromise to external pressure. May their tribe increase. I'm going to close in prayer, but before I do, let me ask that you remain seated. One of our elders wants to introduce a family to our church family. So let's pray. 
Father, thank you for our time of worship this morning. I'm grateful, Father, for your grace and for your goodness. I thank you for this story of courage, of faith, of commitment, of living based on internal principles from the Word of God and the knowledge of God and deciding not to be pressured by a world that has abandoned the Judeo-Christian ethic and biblical morality. Father, cause us to stand. And in standing, understand that you will be honored, that you will be glorified in and through our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like uh, Chuck and Kim Walker and Mackenzie to come forward. Uh, Chuck and Kim are wanting to join Melanie Park as members, and uh, we've gone through the gone through the process. And I got to visit with them, and it was a wonderful time to get to know their family. Uh, really neat family. Uh, I want you to kind of welcome them, and then try to get to know them. They're really neat folks. Uh, really pleasure to have them, and a blessing uh, for me for him to be here. So let's uh, pray together and then come welcome. Father, thank you for Chuck and Kim McKenzie and their desire to join us and the blessing it is to know them. Pray that they would uh, find friendship and uh, places to belong here at Melanie Park and to to be able to bless uh, our family uh, with what they have to offer. And we just uh, thank you for them. Thank you for the service. Thank you that we can live and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> 